when I first started it. Um, I don't know if you all want to talk a little bit about the like the decision making that might have gone into the sort of the aesthetic for this game, but it struck me as being really frightening. Um, yeah, that's how I'll put it, I guess. It, first of all, is it scary, actually, or am I just being uh, a chicken or... <laughs> You know, and then if so, like why why did they go that route with it? I didn't realize that was something that D and D was really about. Um, yeah, um, I, I think like obviously Mike understands the the D and D aesthetic a little bit more than I do, but I know from my experience playing CRPGs, especially in the line of like the D and D games and stuff, um, they were very much more geared towards an adult audience uh, just because of the nature of the beast. Like, as much, while Nintendo was obviously marketing their consoles to children and, and sort of emphasizing the, the accessibility of the games and how easy it was to just, like, plug into your television and go, um, the yeah. CRPG world, especially in the States, like, you had to be, you know, you had to have access to a top-of-the-line computer you probably had a, a decent amount of coding experience and, you know, a decent amount of disposable income. So it just didn't gear itself towards kids as much. And I think between sort of the movement away uh, from, like, the 80s adventure games into the, the sort of, you know, 90s CRPGs, there was also this kind of, you know, at, at the same time as, like, comic books was doing the same thing there was this sort of effort to sort of make nerdy things grown up um <laughs> which you know is sort of hilarious and adorable when you look back at it like 20 years from then um you know as c.s yeah. lewis says the one thing that real adults don't have to say is that they are adults um like <laughs> so as as a consequence i i think i think the the Planescape Torment especially sort of oversteered into the adulthood thing. Um, and, and we'll bump into that from time to time. Um, but I do think it is, like, creepy, yes. Probably not as much scary. Like, I, I get Haunted House vibes from the opening okay. areas more than I get, like, outright horror. Although there are a couple of, like, especially the... the sort of hallucinatory nightmare sequence like there, there is an element yes. of that there um but yeah like I, I think some of that is is you know adult posturing back in the 90s with the crp crpg scene but i know too that our D, &D setting of sigil is kind of unique and may lend itself more to that but again that's i suspect more mike's wheelhouse yeah well, Steve's here too. Uh, like, hey, what's up? Yeah, uh, sorry, I was a little late in class. I didn't want to interrupt what was going on. I just figured no, I'd take my in the back. But but look at this. We've we've got a new person, Steve. Meet Mike. Oh, hey, Mike. Mike. Meet Hi, Steve. Steve. So yeah, but Michael, do you want to go by Mike or Michael? I I really either is fine. I, I get either from from all directions. All right. Well, yeah. So you're you're one of our honorary professors tonight. So yeah, tell us about your, you know, thoughts on this whole, you know, creepy slash scary uh, aesthetic and and what what it's all about um, and how this game kind of fits into the Dungeons and Dragons uh, mythos. You know, it's this whole 
uh, idea of the planes. Um, clearly, there's some world building behind that, and I don't I don't know anything about it, so I've at it. Yeah, no, sure. Um, I mean, the, the thing about about D and D both as in terms of its uh, sort of the structure and the rules of play and its setting, which is a shared multiverse, is that it an analogy that that can sort of come to mind is like um, a bit like sort of the DC and Marvel universe, uh, universes because they all developed over a pretty broad stretch of time with a ton of different collaborators without necessarily a shared vision, certainly not from the start. Um, and that kind of, I, I mean, and that's kind of like how in Marvel, you know, when, when Stanley wrote up Galactus, he didn't have some elaborate plan in mind about the metaphysics of Galactus. He wanted to have, and this is his words, he wanted to have the Fantastic Four fight God. Um, nice. So early on in, in D&D, there wasn't a lot of thought of what are we building? They're like, well, this is a monster from the plane of shadow. This is a creature from the abyss. This is, you know, this, this angel comes from uh, Mount Orborea. And, and so it's kind of piecemeal. Um, and it got sort of systematized over time. Um, and it's, it's, so it's kind of, so the, it, it's, Planescape is sort of one of the attempts to, particularly for the second edition of Ventures and Dragons, sort of systematize that um, because it establishes the world of Sigil, but Sigil is touching on sort of all of what are called the outer planes, um, which is sort of like the sort of the spiritual or intellectual building blocks of the D&D multiverse. And, and going to the subject of sort of like uh, grim and gritty, which does go back to like early days of D&D and the hobby. But also one of the big influences on Planescape was uh, World of Darkness, which was, it's a it's a, another sort of shared setting um, by another company called White Wolf Publishing that was sort of these different linked games of urban fantasy horror. Um, oh, yeah. Like, so, yeah. Um, and it's very... Like it, it, it kind of like what Ben was saying about comic books in the '90s. Uh, World of Darkness is a creature of the '90s, and still they're still very popular games. But I think their biggest both response to the zeitgeist and and influence on some of the tabletop scene was in the '90s, and they're very dark and grim and gritty, and that's reflected in sort of the both the fact that Sigil is this interplanar city of grim and, uh, of grit and grime, and also that it has this big focus on sort of political and philosophical factions. Um, that's kind of some of the stuff that goes into, it's definitely very much an influence of the time, but also sort of the, some of the, like the larger interests that they had when they were building the game. No. Yeah. I totally got the, the urban fantasy vibe and I was not expecting that either. And it, uh, particularly with, um, Mort, Right, this disembodied head that floats around with you. Uh, I got some very uh, Bob the Skull vibes, yes. if you're familiar with the Dresden Files. And I don't know which one came first, but uh, Dresden uh, has some friends who play a lot of D&D-type games and stuff. So I don't know. I thought that might be a, a direct reference one way or the other. I'm not sure. Uh, or, you know, it's just fun to have a floating skull around. Uh, but yeah, so what do you all make of that opening movie then um because it really sets the tone along with the kind of like the art style that you get um 
from just kind of looking at this thing before us. Uh, it, it has this, um, you know, for the time, I think probably pretty elaborate opening movie sequence. And I guess the enhanced version has probably touched it up a bit. Um, it looked pretty good, I thought, uh, either way. Um, and yeah, it, I'm, I'm, there's many questions I have about it, but I just kind of want to hear y'all's impressions, first of all. Yeah, on, I'm uh, playing the old, you. the old GOG version, which is, you know, a uh-huh. DOSBox port and is, you know, the au naturel Planescape experience. Um, and it is a rough-looking cutscene. Like, oh, okay. you remember the, uh, like, the CG cutscenes at the opening of the remasters for, like, Final Fantasy V and Final Fantasy VI in the anthology yes. collection? That's the Oh, level. they're wonderful. Yeah, they're, they're great in their own little way, but they are, you know, they show their age. Um, yeah, no, I, 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 I think they drastically change your look at the game, though, as well. They're not, they're not present at all in any form in the original game, and so this is there in the original game. It just doesn't look as polished. Yeah. I take it, but I think that's that's the level of fidelity we're dealing with there, like the the sort of you know kind of arch. Uh, art style so like I, I haven't seen the enhanced edition so I don't know if there's there's a big upgrade on display there I imagine there is they I'd be surprised if they didn't um, but it is kind of you know the the sort of blocky over smooth textures and stuff which honestly lends to the uncanniness given that this is a scene that is supposed to invoke a kind of hallucinatory quasi horror quality to it um, but at the same time like the locations are so detailed and i think that's that's one of the things that it gets across so well like that that very right. opening shot of like the zombie pushing the deer <laughs> into this oh, elaborate like I, I called it a mausoleum last week but they call it the mortuary in the game mortuary yes yeah um just this huge facility devoted to you know maintaining and, and keeping the dead um, and it's got that that ominousness about it, all these shadows and all this like apparently marble flooring and stuff. Like it's it's very gothic, you know, high gothic fantasy kind of kind of stuff here. Um, the urban element is certainly there, but it's urban urban and old, I think. Um, like 18th century urban, more than 21st century urban, I suspect. Um, no, a little steampunk for yep, sure. Definitely a little there. Um, and the zombies are awesome. I so I texted Steve when I when I saw Steve had uh, opened the game. I was like, okay, you've got to talk to all the zombies. Uh, this is important. Yep. <laughs> Bob will tell. I mean, I keep calling him Bob, but he's Mort, right? Mort yep. will tell you like they're dangerous. They'll mess with them. They're not. They're they're harmless, and you need to talk to all of them and inspect them closely. Um, it took me a while to figure this out, uh, and so I wandered around and around. But, um, but yeah, Steve, what what did you think of the uh, opening hour or two of this game? Uh, it was interesting. It's a, a kind of game I haven't played before. Uh, I guess Same. you know, talk, it, it kind of reminds me of like the old RTSs, though, like with the clicking and stuff. You know, so my Warcraft three days are kind of coming back. Um, <laughs> I was very distracted in the opening cutscene. That I guess it's the guy that you're playing as looks like Willem Dafoe. 
Um, I don't know if anyone else thought that, but like, there's like a cut, and I'm like, whoa, that has to be like based on Willem Dafoe. It had the exact same, or maybe it's just bad CGI, and like that's just you know what it was at the time. Um, but yeah, um, no, I thought it was interesting. I the the skulls kind like accent was kind of off putting to me, or I guess maybe disarmed me a little bit. Um, feel like it injected almost like a comedic element to it. Oh yeah, uh, I think that's intentional. Uh, like this sort of I don't even know. It's like a Brooklyn Cockney accent. Like it's it is hard to <laughs> yeah. place, but it does have this very kind of jarring out of place quality like here you are you booted up this high fantasy game from the world of dungeons and dragons and the first guy who greets you sounds like he just came from long island like (laughs) and he's a floating skull who is apparently also kind of like inappropriately trying to get at the zombie women i guess like i don't like that yeah it's icky. I mean, that's part of the creep factor, right? Uh, it's, yeah. it's, it's all building this world for us. Yeah. yeah, but I mean, that's kind of how it's meant to come across, though, I think. Like, it is, on the one hand, a little icky, but on the other hand, like, the way that he talks about it, the way that you and he interact, you know, he doesn't seem to think that it's a big deal. And he defends himself. He's like, they're dead. What do they care? And yes, icky from the outside, but you know, the whole situation that you find yourself in, thrown into this mortuary, being instructed that there are all these zombies around, and it is totally okay to kill them, by the way, like, Mort even stresses that it's actually to their advantage if you kill them and thus give them a little bit of a break from their responsibilities. Like, you're being told right from the outset that up is down, left is right, morality isn't what it looks like, Things are strange here, um, and I think it is meant to be disorienting. And I don't think it's an accident that you go directly from this presumably immoral act of killing the zombies so you can get the key and escape from the room to the first step into the next room is more making this kind of creepy, icky, sexual in nature joke, um, or not joke, like. I think we're supposed to be off guard and the game is sort of preparing us that our standards don't necessarily apply here. Um, like Mike said, Sigil is sort of this location between the planes and specifically the outer realms, these places that are the embodiments of D&D's most fanatical ideologies, its most you know, radicalized perspectives. What would count as morality on a more familiar plane may not have as much bearing here. Um, we are there be dragons here, so to speak, oh, yeah. literally and figuratively. I mean, we saw them in the opening cutscene. You're on a battlefield fighting some dragon type monsters there, and um, well, one of the questions I had about that too is about the the female characters that we see there we see a human woman and you seem to know her pretty well and then at the end of it you know she uh, points at you like an accusing finger and all these other kind of transformations seem to be happening you also turn into like a corpse like thing of some kind and and then you see this uh, kind of ghostly female uh 
moving and whoa right on cue it's Corey, our our resident ghostly female student <laughs> she appeared whoa whoa uh she sometimes is secretly here and listening um Corey, are you there Maybe she's getting set up. But yeah, anyway, so are those two people the same person? The the ghost? And we meet her later uh, down in the bottom floor of the mortuary. Um, or is that somebody else? They don't, I mean, to me, they didn't look quite the same. Uh, so I'm confused about that. Yeah, I don't think we have an answer to that question at this okay. point. Um, and I'm honestly not even sure we'll get one. Like, one of the things okay. that you'll notice as we're going through the game is we are sort of... I, I, there are a couple of occasions, even in the mortuary, where you can regain some of your memories um, here and there. Just just one or two. But they're not spinning out of us in some logical sequence. We're not getting a backstory. We're not getting, you know, like, more information about the character as it goes on. Um, and it's emphasized right off the bat that our, our avatar, the nameless one... Um, he has lived many, many lives at this point, like too many to count, it seems. And all of them seem to be mixed up into one another. Um, and what's more, since we can't remember any of them, um, we seem to be just sort of stumbling randomly into his own backstory, just, or rather into any number of his backstories. Um, so, you know, as much as we're looking for kind of a linear explanation like is this the same woman as appeared in the cutscene you know what what relation do they have to the nameless one i think it's really telling that when you finally meet dayanara when the the ghostly woman at the sort of main floor all of your reactions to her are basically emphasizing that the nameless one has no idea who this woman is um <laughs> Like, you can tell her, oh, sure, I remember you, but it's listed in the dialogue tree as a lie. Um, or you can say, you know, like, you can manipulate her based on the information that you have been given just in this this conversation. Like, oh, do you really love me? Well, then you'll do X, Y, Z for me. Which, you know, it, it's just it's very clear that as devoted as Dayanara seems to be, as desperate as she is for the Nameless One's love, we get the sense that either she just didn't matter that much to him, it's hard for us to tell because, again, we have nothing to work with as far as backstory information, or it is just something that was important and has been completely forgotten. Um, so it's... You know, as much as we want those answers, as much as the game is sort of giving us all of these questions, all of this sort of mystery to unravel, I'm not sure it promises to actually unravel them. Um, the game seems perfectly content to just leave us in the dark, um, which I think is interesting, you know, because so much of of fantasy and traditional storytelling in a situation like this where you have this you know the most stock trope of all amnesia and yet the solution here isn't well if you get enough memories everything will make sense the solution is hey roll with it um see how see what you can do with what you've got yeah I, so i got some very you know uh breath of the wild vibes 
at the very start of this game too, although they're so different in so many ways, right? Mm -hmm. They do both start with this very kind of awesome way to start your video game, which is to have your hero wake up in a mysterious place and not know who they are and have to go about finding out, right? And, Mm -hmm. And yeah, you're right. This game seems to be teasing you with some memories maybe and the hint that there's this love story or even a love triangle or something going on but yeah you're not you're not going to go out like looking for the the lost memories so much as you are on the threshold of eternity is that what they call it um Mm -hmm. this game has bigger fish to fry is the sense that i get uh and then simply sort of like filling in the uh the amnesia so but it is, is that what they call quest it? at this point. Like, our, our yeah. mission is to retrieve the journal that Farad apparently stole from us, which apparently has all the information we need. Like, Mort reads right. the tattoos on our back and says, you know, hey, check the journal. And he's like, what journal? And he's like, oh, I guess uh, somebody took the journal. And we're rather quickly informed by Dahl that it was <laughs> probably Farad. He seems to be kind of a dodgy... Yes dodgy person to entrust one's corpse to <laughs> as these things go i'm pretty sure he's going to be our thief though right i mean he's going to join the party it wouldn't be terribly surprising i think like okay. it, it's obvious that the nameless one has a connection to him in some way because you know he's tattooed on his back as well find Farad. um <laughs> but you know like the initial sense that we get from just more reading the nameless one's back is hey Farad must be you know a party member he must be a compatriot he must be somebody the nameless one knows pretty well but then we hear from doll that he is apparently just a skis bag and you know even the dusties all of these dustmen who apparently deal in dead bodies for a living that even they are kind of suspicious of Farad for possibly as i think mort puts it putting some debtors in the dead book uh before their time um like if you're lacking bodies for money then i guess you can make some of your own if you're really keen on it yeah so yeah the uh the progression here is like get out of the mortuary Mm -hmm. and it seems like there's at least two different ways to do that um you can disguise yourself as one of the dustmen mm-hmm. and stroll out. Apparently, although I didn't, I didn't successfully do that. Um, I kept getting them to ring the bell and call the guards on me, and I was just like running away most mm-hmm. of the time while I was playing. Uh, or you can find the portal that takes you out. Yeah, and so that's how I ended up doing it eventually. Um, but yeah, so what's what is going on, sort of with the I don't. I don't know the, uh, the physics, the metaphysics of this place. We are clearly, um, you know, not quite dead. Um, but neither is Doll. Uh, right, and Doll seems to want to be dead. Um, he wants to be released. It, it seems like, um, but his job is to like keep track of all the dead people. Like. Yeah, I'm just a little confused about that um, that whole concept of um, what uh, life and death are in this in this context. Mm-hmm. Um, so so we can sort of leave by the door 
uh, and sort of disguise ourselves as one of these workers, uh, or we can leave this kind of magical, mysterious way, um, and we can be like, uh, well, I think you wind up in a tomb, basically, if you do that. So it seems to me that those sort of represent, in a way, like the life and the death. And then maybe there's some other thing also, um, this like true death that they talk about. Yeah, I think I think it's especially striking in this area that most of the conversations we have, most of the discussion about death that's going on, presents it less as a binary and more as a very fluid kind of spectrum almost. Um, like when you talk to Dahl, he he talks about the true death as something yes. different than what it seems that everybody in this place is currently experiencing. Like, we've got all these zombies walking around, and we usually understand zombies to mean the undead. Like, they're dead things, but their flesh has been reanimated in some way, you know, but it's not a ghost in the machine situation. Nobody's at home anymore. Um, it's just it's just the structure, the, the physical elements moving around. But based on our interactions with the zombies, it seems like some of them have some degree of consciousness left, or there's, you know, some humanness or whatever they were originally-ness, elfness, tieflingness, perhaps. Oh yeah. Um, like, it it seems that it's not that cut and dry. And you know, when we're presented with this possible spectrum of death, where you know you could sign your body into servitude and not be truly dead in the sense of oblivion, the way that Dahl talks about it. Um, and here we are, the nameless one, who is an even greater aberration. Like he is an abomination, according to the Dustmen, because he can't die. Like there is no true death for him. Um, so we very much get the sense that, you know, death is not just life versus death anymore. Like, some people are dead, but not really dead. Some people can't die. Some people are looking for death and waiting for it. Um, we're told that the Dustmen are sort of a death cult in their own right, that they're obsessed with death, that they're looking to help people die more expediently. Um, bring them to the true death, which is some kind of release from suffering, from struggle. Um, I'm not entirely sure how life and death works in the D&D world, so that's another might question. Um, but it's obvious just from the way that the game is presenting it that it's not simple. Like, even to the point that you you get the power to raise your allies when they fall, like... Death is not permanent here. It may not even be a terribly great setback. Um, there's way worse things that can happen. And for that matter, the, because it seems to be much more complicated, much more difficult than just, you know, you stop living, it seems that it's actually something that a lot of people are aspiring to here. Um, like the true death, the, the true threshold, the getting off of the eternal circuit of reincarnation and instead just stopping altogether. Um, but Mike, what is D&D's take on death? Like, is Sigil an afterlife in some sense? Or how does this work? So Sigil uh, isn't, isn't an afterlife, but it, it does exist in sort of a, a liminal space um, because... The basic way that it works in sort of the D&D multiverse is you die and your soul is sent to 
the outer plane to which your soul uh, is corresponds based on your sort of moral alignment. Um, and that's so that's the D&D has that alignment chart along the law and chaos axes and the good and evil. So there's lawful good, neutral good, chaotic good, um, lawful neutral, true neutral, chaotic neutral, lawful evil, neutral evil, chaotic evil. And there is a outer plane that corresponds to each one of those. Uh, I'm not sure about true neutral, but the rest. And there's also one that corresponds to the boundary between each. So there's a lawful good uh, heaven, a neutral good heaven, and then one that is placed between the two. Um, so there's quite a few, and their names have changed over the editions, so I'm not like able to rattle them all off. But so the general idea is when you die sort of on the sort of a living realm, your soul travels to the corresponding outer plane. And because Sigil links to each of those, it's pretty closely connected to every afterlife that there is. Um, so it's it's definitely in sort of a liminal space. Um, but theoretically, that you know, the, you could encounter a lot of people in Sigil uh, who are living in the sense of they were born, they are aging, they will eventually die, um, you know, of old age or being eaten by a dragon. Um, and the other thing that I mean, and this this is. Uh, the thing is, in D&D, there is, um, first off, there's necromancy. So there's, you know, you can raising zombies like we saw all over the mortuary. Um, and there's also resurrection, uh, sort of a, I guess, a, quote, pure sense of, like the, the ability that the protagonist gets to basically raise somebody from the dead. And that is something that, theoretically, any priest um, of appropriate level in D&D can learn. Um, and not at this point point in the game's history, but as the game has gone on, it's actually become more and more accessible. So death as a narrative impact has a very um, interesting place, depending on the group who's playing the game, what kind of experience they want to have, what level their characters are at. Um, so that, on sort of a meta level, it is somewhat more fluid in D&D as a whole, and Sigil sort of being like, almost on like the, the, the borderline between the afterlife makes it sort of a liminal realm, even if you can, in theory, say, oh, some of the people here are, quote, living and some are, quote, dead. Um, it's somewhat more fluid than that. So it's kind of like a crossroads of the various afterlives in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, and then, I don't know. So the thing I was wondering about is this, um, you know, this possibility of a permadeath, it seems like, is what Dahl is after, right? Uh and like I said, Mike, you know, you can't really play that game for very long, I guess, if you're not good at it. Like, I'm not good at this game, and I died a few times. So this game is forgiving in that it lets me wake up again on the slab and, and try it again. And I even keep all my, my loot, you know, so it's great. But, um, yeah, if you, like, if you go in that crematorium, I take it even the nameless one is not going to be able to walk out again. Um, and and I'm curious. I'm still sort of stuck, I guess, on why would Dahl? And I know I, I had to walk away and uh, and say goodnight to William here, but I don't know if you talked about this. But why why does Dahl want that? Is it just like the idea being that his existence is is so painful, like he knows too much? Um, 
Yeah, he yeah. he talks about it a little bit. Um, he he mentions that you know he, you like even the description of him when you first encounter him is that he's very very old, like remarkably old even by D and D standards. And when you continue the conversation with him, he very much reveals that there isn't anything in any of the planes for him anymore. Nothing can surprise him. He has seen all of it. Um, so you get the sense that this is a profound ennui on Dahl's part. Like, and I think his relationship to the Nameless One, the fact that he doesn't report him to his superiors, the fact that he doesn't, you know, like, subject him to the crematorium, is kind of an awareness that they are similar, in a sense. Like, Dahl is the endpoint of where the Nameless One is going, and the only thing that sort of saved the Nameless One from being doll is the fact that he doesn't remember and can't um like that's almost a blessing the way that doll seems to talk about it like doll because he remembers literally has nothing left to live for and all he wants is that oblivion that rest that reprieve from you know all of the trials of life that he's had to face so far but the nameless one has oblivion he has it in amnesia the fact that he can't remember the fact that it's totally removed from him um, and maybe Dahl's had that too. We have no idea. We, we don't get a whole lot of insight into what his deal is. Um, but we do get the sense that he is just eminently tired more than anything. <laughs> yeah. Like, he has lived through too much. It's time to be done. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I just thought that was such an interesting juxtaposition, right? Yeah, like you say, that. They both have been through an awful lot, um, whereas you are on this kind of mission to make it out again. Uh, he's well. I I also read because I was stuck at a certain point. I was reading up on this. You can kill him, yes. and you can take his pen. Yep. <laughs> I, I just thought that was so messed up. I would never have thought of attacking poor doll. But if you get his pen, you know his quill pen will give you one extra lore point or something. So. Mm-hmm. Anyway, but I, I did. De- I definitely picked up on the the whole like uh, lawful, good, neutral, evil that that whole grid thing. Um, I'm I'm somewhat aware of, uh, and a sort of hint at that um, early on in the game. You know, you you tend to have multiple choices. My conjecture is that choosing different dialogue options and doing Stuff like killing people versus not killing them probably moves you along that spectrum. The game is very quietly tracking these things. Okay. um, And it will affect the end. So so, some of the choices are fairly obvious and and large scale, as is pretty typical in D&D from my experience. But it's also one of those things that the game is just very quietly behind the scenes noting what you were doing. And you will even notice in the character screen if you've tended one way or the other too far... Like, I'm pretty sure the, the Nameless One starts as true neutral, which is kind of appropriate for him. He's a blank slate. He doesn't have any leanings. He, he has no biases. But as the game goes on, as you sort of pick up party members and, and decide who you're going to trust and who you're going to follow and who you're going to distrust or betray, you might find yourself drifting towards one alignment or another, one allegiance or another. Um, the game is subtle about that, I think. Uh, but maybe I'll be wrong, and it'll be really obvious about it later. Who knows? <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I think it's in your talk with Dianara down there. 
she says something about like this vision or you know um this i don't know destiny right that you have um where you will have to make some kind of great sacrifice and i don't know maybe she only says this based on something you're saying to her um also but but it seems like yeah the game is is interested in the kinds of choices you make both in small ways and then ultimately i think you know in in some big cosmic way you're going to like change the structure of of this place um well you'll also notice that dayanara pushes you to die um like her whole discussion with the nameless one is you promised to join me when you were done and by join her she means go through the true death like it, she stresses this yeah. is possible for you and you will need to do it if you want you know a happy ending quote but we also are kind of uncertain maybe this is just her wanting to be together with him she does seem very much in love very desperate for her his company um so you know there's sort of this other element in here like he just woke up he has no idea even who he is or what his story is or, or what the deal is and already we have this lady who's like hey quick let's let's you know actually legitimately kill yourself so we can be together forever <laughs> hooray um like i don't know about you but I, I didn't find that a terribly compelling sales pitch as far as dinara is concerned i mean it's what doll's telling you to do too yeah and he seems pretty wise um no absolutely yeah she's that's what made me think also that she can't be the same as the human figure that we see it mm-hmm. they just seem like very different i don't know uh presences somehow and maybe that's trying to read too much into a, a kind of a weird little opening sequence but uh yeah, the kind of look that she gives you is just very different uh than than the looks you're getting from the human the living person well i guess before she turns into a uh, skeleton monster an accusing skeleton monster yeah, yeah. Ah, geez the more i talk about it the more i'm i'm not even sure but it's it's interesting anyway and i just want to throw out also dianara's her like namesake i i guess uh is probably significant here right she's the um she's the wife of hercules in the myth yeah and and so you're a hercules figure in some ways right and and he's interesting because he is both god and human right and he like uh maybe goes to the underworld but maybe goes to olympus like is it's sort of unclear um, what well, his it's also significant afterlife. that Dayanara is the wife he marries who doesn't trust him, gets <laughs> yes, ends up poisoning yes. his cloak and causing him to die as well. Like, right. And I think that's especially significant in this situation because, you know, Dayanara is urging you to die. Um, and it's significant, too, that the Nameless One is covered in scars. Like, this is his main facial feature. This is why he looks like a monster. Um and you know multiple people comment about this you even get you can even get them stitched up like Ivan will help you out with that like right. um the random not a zombie who is wandering around will absolutely disguise you as a zombie if you talk to him about it um uh, like you are pretty messed up in the same way that doll is bearing all those mental scars it seems that you're bearing your fair share of physical ones even if you don't remember why um so they're like it seems that there is a major possibility that Dayanara is the reason 
you've suffered as much as you have that just the namesake the, the sort of relationship that is yeah. suggested there as much as she is presented as you know a former lover who is honestly concerned for your well-being and who you can even manipulate on those grounds we might not trust her she might have her own agenda. She might be the one who messed us all up. She might, you know, be leading us to a bad end. Um, you know, the Greeks certainly would have been suspicious of her. They would have taken one look at this and been like, yep, I smell a rat. Don't like this. Guess I'm going to go hang out with my boy friends some more instead. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I, I think... And, and even the way that she is presented, like, even the voice acting, which, I, that's one of the best voice actors, actresses in video gaming. I want to say that she's she's definitely the same one who did the voice of Alex in Eternal Darkness. Is that Femshep, too, Mike? I know that you would... That is Femshep. That's Jennifer Hale, yep. Yep, she is amazing, and she brings so much character to those few lines of dialogue that she's got there. Like, the sort of desperation of her love, while also, you know, the sort of scariness of of that desperation of that devotion um which is so out of place given our circumstances the fact that we know literally nothing about his backstory and we're sort of forced into this position where we kind of trust her and kind of don't like she knows more about us than we do but how much is that can we trust her like she really drives home just all of the dimensions of that character and what is a surprisingly short interaction for that much depth. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And her, her mechanic, I, w I want to call it this, like if you talk to her in the right way, she will help unlock or it, it helps unlock that, that raise the dead ability of yours. Mm -hmm. um, that also seems uh, interesting, right? The way that that happens um, seems like something you can you can miss if you don't talk to her enough. Um, can you escape this place without talking to her at all? Is that possible? I think it's difficult. Um, I want to say that you can't leave without getting the raised dead ability. I, I think that that's pretty well hard coded in there. I, I think at the very least, like Soigo, the the guy who covers the front door, will not let you out until you've talked to Dayanara. Um, although I can't be sure about that, because I did talk to Dayanara first. Um, right. But, yeah, like, the raised dead ability is really important from a mechanical standpoint, because it's the only way to, to keep your partners going. Um, like, it, it's important for the game that when you have your, your various party members fall in battle, that you can revive them. Um, and even if, like, the whole bunch of you are deposited back in the mortuary, obviously the Nameless One will resurrect perfectly good as new. Um, and then you literally, like, from the game's perspective, just revive all of your other party members and just continue as though nothing is wrong. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that the game very much kind of steers you into meeting her, steers you into that conversation, at the very least for the mechanical purpose. Uh, but there are things that you can miss. Like, you, in the conversation, you can, she, she will tell you, you know, I know the way out of here if you ask her, but she won't, she won't open it for you. She won't open the portal until you swear, like, make a vow that you will come back to her, but you can also talk your way out of it 
by saying, oh, I thought you had my best interests in mind, and just turn those guilt screws, and then she'll be like, I guess I'll have to take your word for it, which is kind of heartbreaking. Like, because how do you know whether you've been faithful to her in the past before? How do you know that you're trustworthy at this point? Like, you, the player, have enough control over the circumstances that you could theoretically keep that promise, but do you really even want to? Like, we don't know who this is. Um, yeah, I was very curious about that. So, is it worse in mechanically or just like, I don't know, is it worse to, to lie to her in, in the first place here or to make the vow and then break it later, you know? Uh, I think I've ended up making the vow and I'm starting to really doubt the wisdom of doing that. Um, but uh, I was just desperate to get out of that place. Yeah. Like I was, I was just, I, I got killed by those giant skeletons one too many times. Oh and, no, not the giant skeletons. And, and apparently you can just read a book at them and they yep. die. Yes. What? If you have the, the Tome of Ash and Bone, you can evaluate the, the runes on their breastplates and you can just like smudge them out of existence and they'll just fall apart at your feet and you get to take their, their stuff. Um, it's very convenient. And you get a ton of experience for it too. It's like 800 experience per skeleton. Um, okay, but also, do you gain levels or does do you have to get crew experience and then you sort of like spend it on points to, to buff up different you know parts of your your character like how does yes. this you do work? in fact get okay. levels um i in fact leveled up on my way out because nice. i was very very thorough and was using a walkthrough the whole time um so yeah you got a walkthrough yeah i've played this game once before and i feel like uh, my role in our discussion this time around is i've got to be the one who knows all the potential options and, and alternatives um so i have very much been getting guidance along the way um, so yeah, I, I, I already have a journal guys, like, what was that, Mike? No, no, it's fine. I was, I was mostly kidding. It's just funny. Cause I, I'm, I'm definitely trying to avoid that. Yeah. I want to see if I can get where I want to go without looking things up. And I recommend that. Like the first time I played, I played blind. I did manage to figure out the skeleton thing, but that was after a couple of save scumming trial and errors like i think the first time i went through the mortuary it took me like two days and four hours total to get through the whole thing because i like west spent a lot of time dying this time none like I, I, it was it was weirdly good how well i managed the whole thing like i, I didn't even have to like restart once um i i immediately got into my um costume as the zombie went to the second floor met the first dustman snapped his neck because i am an immoral monster took his clothes <laughs> proceeded to stormtrooper my way around the rest of the facility and never had any problems um, oh, so ego did in fact call me out at one point and i was very grumpy about that but he didn't seem to be terribly upset by it so like i had a had a very shockingly smooth run but i, I again stress absolutely keep going in blind like okay yeah um i i think that i think that flying by the seat of your pants is the way this game is meant to be played like not having any idea what's going on not understanding the consequences of your actions making rash vows to random ghost ladies like <laughs> i think that's exactly what the game wants you to do um and i think it'll make for a, a really 
valuable experience as a consequence. Like, you never get to play this game for the first time twice. Um, so by all means, like, play it with no idea what's going on. Um, and, you know, I will hypocritically do that work instead. <laughs> well, I, I'm just curious, how much, how much different is it, so for y'all who have played this through already, but, but when you played it, you, I take it, like, sort of knew about these worlds at least a little bit, right? You either had played Dungeons & Dragons or uh, Baldur's Gate or its sequel or some something, right? Like, I've never played any of that stuff, right? And so I have all this sort of, like, secondhand hearsay about these things. But um, what was it like for y'all to play it first time? When... I think my first introduction to Dungeons and Dragons was back when I was an undergrad, like back when I was doing my research projects over the summer, Dr. Ramsey would host Dungeons and Dragons games and we would all just play like every Friday night. Um, but we never got into the deep lore, like Sigil, when I first played this game, was a completely different experience. Um, so like, I, I think I played Planescape Torment for the first time when I was living in Boston a few years later. And it was very much unexpected. Like, I knew the basic alignment rules. I knew how the leveling up system worked. Um, and the game very much streamlines that process. Like, a lot of the decision-making of building your character is taken out of your hands. Um, just because I, the Nameless One isn't, you know, a player character. He is himself, um, has his own abilities. And while he is modifiable, as we will see later on, um, it's still within fairly strictly defined limits for the purposes of the game or the story or however. Um, so in that sense, I was very much taken aback. Every place that I went, every conversation I had was with stuff I did not know or understand. Um, and that's why I recommend that you go in blind because... That's a good point. Yeah. So you you already had some expectations. So yes. you were... You were taken aback in a different way. <laughs> yes. The story yeah. was brand new. The world was brand new. But the, the mechanics I had experienced before. Like I'd played Neverwinter Nights at that point. Um, which is a very different game. Uh, and not nearly as good in my opinion. Um, but as, as a consequence. Like I knew what I was expecting. As far as the actual gameplay was concerned. And that was fairly easy for me to pick up. But the story blew me away as much as you were getting blown away by it. Like, that's... It's just, you know... I understood the frame, but not what was in it, is I guess what it comes down to. Um, but Mike, you're the one who's going in with, con like, all of your knowledge about D&D &D and Sigil, so I imagine your experience well, is rather different. Well, I mean, I, I, I do... I have a... I mean, I, I would say in some in some ways it's it's like I have a fuller frame that, that, that going in because I certainly have a lot of knowledge. I know Sigil, I know sort of like the general universe, but I, from from what I've played, which is just through the mortuary, I don't know how much it links up to different facets of the meta plot or sort of who I'm going to meet from like the major NPC. So so I, I, I am still hoping and expecting a fair amount of fresh detail. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think it, it, um, maybe somewhat comparable to maybe for you, if you were playing a Star Wars RPG, maybe because like, you know, that world and you know, a lot of the familiar setting details, not just in outline, but in the sense of like 
you know, in, in some level of sort of specificity, right. but it could still be fresh. And that, that's that's what I'm hoping for. Right. Like um, if you're playing the Star Wars RPG and Lando shows up, you're like, oh, look who it is, kids. And, you know, that's right. I, yeah. Here. Right. Yeah. I, and I, I don't know if that's going to happen. And I mean, I do have some like and I haven't played a ton of CRPGs. I think the one that I have most experience with is sort of like a bridge between classic and sort of newer, which is Dragon Age. Um, and that is Dragon Age is, is very clearly meant to be Baldur's Gate 2.0. Um, right. And and I mean, like I, I do have some expectations just from D and D. Like I'm 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 going to see Thief as as quickly as I can. Um, and so like I have some some expectation from that, but the the there, there's still a lot. And I think I would I was surprised. I think um, it seems to sort of sit in, the, in a sort of a, uh, a junction point between sort of the CRPGs and then sort of like the um, what are they, what are they called the stuff like the Sims like um, Deus Ex what are those oh, the immersive sims. Yeah. Immersive yes. sims. Yep. yeah so it's kind of like it sort of seems to be a junction junction of CRPGs and immersive sims are sort of like even precursor to open world games mm-hmm. so like I have some framework and like I feel like I, I'm kind of like oh yeah there's something familiar about this I know of like the major notes I want to hit, but there's still a lot about it that to me feels different. Well, Steve, what, what did you think? I mean, uh, you I think you're coming at it from a standpoint kind of like me, where this is different. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, admittedly, um, kind of, I guess this is a callback to, to last week about not realizing a mechanic that was available to me. When I first got to the stairs to leave the floor, I thought like I had clicked to go up them and I couldn't go. So then I ended up just kind of wandering around back and forth, had to do that stupid puzzle with the note. I was like, oh, well, that's the key because there were gates that were like, you need a key. And I was like, all right, well, that's fine. Um, I didn't even find the note uh, or the puzzle with it anyway. So it's cool. Uh, but you eventually were able to go up the stairs, or yeah. But then it was class was starting soon, so I ended up. So I I, I only just got upstairs. Oh, okay. Um, but I do want to play it some more. Um, but yeah. Make sure you find the crowbar. I'm telling yes. you, uh, that is key. That cracks it wide open, so to speak. <laughs> the crowbar. Uh, yeah, and so it is like Deus Ex in that way, right? Because you you can do stuff to interact with the world that's not obvious at first. Mm-hmm. Um, you can obviously, you know, talk to all of the guards, and sometimes they will be okay with you, and sometimes they'll attack you. You can, um, yeah, you can interact with like aspects of the world, right? So like, yeah, the puzzle. Um, that you, you know, can destroy the skeleton guards by by solving. Or what happens if you do the puzzle with the note? It's not a yeah, key, but you like fold all the the corners in the right order, and then it pops out with the earring, the the earring of three, the uh... rule of three, um, which we're told by by Mort, or I think it's Mort, who that like there's this kind of wild generalization that like all things come in threes you know yes. and more even is a little 
snide about it. He's like, well, yeah, if you put too much weight on any number, like you'll be able to see it everywhere. So I don't know. Some people, some people buy into this whole Trinity three stuff, but you know, whatever. <laughs> uh, so we know it's super important. Right? Mm -hmm. I guess I got to go back and get this earring. Um, well, if you've got the note, that's all you need. It doesn't need to be in any oh. specific place. Oh, okay. Yeah, I think I. It's like tucked into a book that one of the. Anyway, yeah. The, no, this was this was the one that was in I think one of the the mouths yeah, of the zombies. The oh, it's sewn into the mouth. Oh, okay, okay. So you, you have to surgically you extract it with your scalpel. Yep. Yes. Because if you kill the I guy, I think if you popped up all the zombies, he might have picked it up just because it's it's one of the it's a pretty prominent option. So maybe you yep. you have it in your inventory. I think so, yeah. And I definitely got the book. I just didn't know how to use the book. Okay. Um, every time I went down into that part, I was fleeing from from guards, yep. and so they would like automatically attack me, and I didn't have the leisure to read their breastplates uh, as a result. But um, yeah, this 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 whole like uh, connection to real time strategy. I want to kind of revisit that too. Is this is this made with the same engine as some of those games? Like, is it operating um, with the same kind of uh, background, like software behind it? Uh, or y'all know yeah, where this fits in, in that story? Think so. Um, okay. Like the isometric perspective was actually really used a lot in the D and D CRPGs of the time, and Planescape Torment is actually fairly late in the D&D run. Um, like, I want to say it was 2001 that Torment came out. I could be off by a year or two. But this is well after the first Baldur's Gate. This is well after, I, I think, Icewind Dale and, and quite a few of the other various games in the franchise up until this point. Um, there were different developers working on it, which is kind of notable. Like, there were a number of different studios that D&D had working on different games. Um, the, our studio at Planescape Torment is the famous Black Isle um, that would then go on and sort of evolve into Obsidian, which they made like Fallout New Vegas um, and did quite a bit with the Fallout games um, and have kind of their own sort of parallel legacy, um, which most recently culminates in Outer Worlds. Um, I might get some of the history wrong there, but I'm pretty sure there is a pretty direct line that can be traced. Um, but as a consequence, like, these games frequently varied wildly in quality. Like, some of them are very beloved, and some of them are entirely forgettable and everything in between. Um, but I think it was very much its own engine. Like, the isometric view was very popular in the 90s because that fixed camera angle was super useful at making it so you didn't have to render all the sides of various objects and could just render little 2D sprites. Um, so, like, Diablo 2 uses the same perspective, even though it's a hack-and-slasher. Um, you've got, like you said, a lot of um, real-time strategy games like StarCraft that adopt this kind of perspective that it's, you know, fixed, or maybe it zooms in and out a little bit, but never allows you to, like, rotate the camera or anything. Um, so, there are similarities, and I think the reason why there are similarities actually has a lot to do with the interface, more than it has to do with the mechanics. That's a good point. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like, when when you're working with 
an art when you're building an RPG that is specifically for mouse and keyboard, yeah, it's going to be inventory focused. There's going to be lots of clicking to go places, um, clicking to interact with things. You know, you could never make this game for Xbox or for Nintendo. Like, it, it just the adaptation would be so difficult. Um, so I think it makes sense that they would borrow some RTS mechanics. But honestly, if this is 2001, the RTS is still fairly early in its lifespan. Like, I want to say this is before Warcraft 3, probably after Age of Empires 2 and StarCraft, but not by a lot, maybe a couple years. Is it 1999? Yeah, StarCraft was 98, if I recall. So we're talking about not a lot of not a lot of space, not a lot of time has passed between some of our earlier RP, or earlier standout RTSs and what we're dealing with with Torment here. Um. Yeah, I mean, they have ported these, I think, to consoles. Um, I don't know how different they are. Uh, yeah, maybe the Enhanced Edition did an overhaul on the um, interesting to see. control. No, but that's uh, something... I mean, yeah, we we talked about this a bit when we were talking about our our brief is X run, but like it is so different to yeah. sit at a computer and play these games like that. And I imagine there's something about the the storytelling and the voices that helps connect this to the tabletop origins. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, I feel like it's closer to that experience than than to playing a JRPG yeah. as weird as that sounds right but that's how it struck me like this is a very different approach uh to games than your, your chrono triggers and your final fantasies well even to um, the point that like the main way that you're interacting with characters and with the world is through that text box um right. which also serves a bunch of functions it, it operates like a dm it will describe the world to you it will you know mm -hmm. when you approach doll it describes him in great detail describes his actions the way that he looks just like a dm would um this is very much you know both crpgs and jrpgs inherit a lot of what made D D as popular like a lot of its mechanics a lot of the way that interacted with the world but where JRPGs sort of adopted the, the mechanics, the levels, the you know gradual progression, and just sort of built their own stories and their own ways of interacting with the world in, in sort of separate ways, like no longer is space a consideration, no longer are you like describing your action to the DM and getting a response in that way. Like instead the focus is, okay, let's just have things happen. Let's have the story spin out mechanically rather than in dialogue. For the CRPG they went the other direction. Let's use the DM. Let's, you know, take the assumption that people are making that they're going to be sort of told this story. Let's take and remove it so you are not the same as your player character. You are not the same as the avatar. Like you, let's use the distance and make that into a storytelling mechanism in its own right. Um, and that was kind of the, the direction that they focused in. It is meant to feel like a tabletop game because we are marketing this to tabletop gamers. Um, the CRPG isn't strong enough as a medium at this point for that to be the only thing that you need to sell it. 
Um, you know, you can sell the newest Mario game just to Mario fans and still make all of your money and then some. Um, but you've got to sell your CRPG as an effective Dungeons & Dragons game before it'll sell, um, before it will be successful. Um, especially when it is D&D that's the license and that is sort of calling the shots on this. Yeah, how... I don't know how... Um that dynamic worked exactly right so they're they have sort of ownership of the intellectual property um but on the other hand they're sort of outsourcing this to software developers right so yeah that it's an interesting uh side of this and and it's making me think what you said about the dm like making me think back to that um that dissertation i uh, Marianne Buckles. Mm -hmm. She has she has a lot of discussion in there about um, how the original like uh, adventure, the the colossal cave adventure game, um, you know how it talked to the player right. um, and how sort of interesting that was at the time. Um, and I, I believe that she makes that connection back to uh, Dungeons and Dragons, a, mm -hmm. a part of her argument. But she also connects it to stuff like. Um, you know, fairy tales and epics uh, and you know, fantasy literature, right? So, right. yeah, there's just a lot more of that kind of stirring around uh, in this game and yeah, maybe a more streamlined experience like uh, uh, JRPGs. Um, yeah, okay. Well, so any, any other stuff from this first... Well, however long it takes to get out of mortuary, uh, stuff that struck you guys that stood out to you. Um, the one thing that we didn't really touch upon very much is is poor Vaxus, um, the spy. <laughs> okay. Yeah, like we talked about him briefly, but I, I feel like it's it's worth mentioning here, especially because we were talking about that sort of spectrum of death. Um, and I love the idea of this guy who has snuck into the place posing as a zombie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> posing as one what, of the dead, inappropriately. What, what's his deal there? He He's trying to get some embalming fluid? Or a key to the embalming like supplies? or like I wasn't clear what he was doing there. Um, I don't know if we'll find out later, or if I, I just missed something, but... Yeah, there are a couple uh, things going on with him. Um, I deceived him. Like, my first move was, was to tell him that I was apparently his handler and I was taking over for him, at which point he turned <laughs> over all of his swag to me and left. Um, oh, man. Yeah, like, as soon as I left the floor, he disappeared as well. Um, but apparently he is on some kind of secret mission. He was apparently looking for stuff. He knows the way out of the facility that all you need to do is like have this apparently crooked finger bone key, which will open up a portal, and that's how he's planning to get out. Um, I didn't catch what his actual mission was because I was too busy telling him that it was done. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he's a really interesting sort of feature here. And you can also report him. Like, you can go back to Dahl and say, hey, there's this spy hanging around, and get a bunch more experience and, and some recognition that way as well. But by the time that I would have done that, he had already left, so I didn't get any points for that. Um, but yeah, he's 
it's just you know one more of those out of left field like what the heck is going on here moments that apparently you know in addition to us wandering around this mortuary trying to find the way out and meeting all of these random zombies who are disfigured in all these sorts of strange ways or Ivane and her shockingly fast surgery like yes. uh, with all of this we also have this character who is posing as a zombie for who knows what reason um, he is called an anarchist spy by the walkthrough but that's really all we yeah, have He's spying for the Revolutionary League. Yep. Gonna overthrow. So they want to. Yeah, they want to end the. What are the dustmen? I mean, they're they're keeping the dead in check. I mean, so if you overthrow them, and and what? I I I guess I just don't get it. (laughs) I guess the dead run wild at this point. Um, That would be interesting okay you that'd be truly this... anarchic i guess yeah yeah the 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 one sort of sense we get is that there is something kind of dodgy about all of the zombie slave labor happening here um like it does seem pretty obvious that the dustmen are you know have basically turned this into a sweatshop of sorts with the dead taking care of the dead um and one of the things that is kind of striking about the zombies we run into is a lot of them are kind of presented in a weirdly sympathetic light. Um, like as much as Mort seems pretty callous about their status as persons that they're just like shambling corpses, you know, we, we have a couple of them where like something has gone wrong. Like one guy has two numbers that you can uncover when you like cut yeah. his thread. Um, there's definitely one on the top floor, I think, who is, like, very badly burned. Um, you know, and, and even the fact that you talk to them, like, that you, you know, have this sort of weird, affectionate, bantering tone, that the lines that you use are things like, hey, that looks pretty heavy, let me take that for you. And, of course, they don't respond, they can't respond, and more even chides you, he's like, there's no point in talking to them. But you do, and the Nameless One personifies them for us. He turns them into sympathetic characters, and every single one of them, like, there are dozens of them in this place, all just numbers, and, you know, some of them are kind of weirdly tragic. Like, you can push the one of them over, and they shatter, and you carry their arm around and beat people with it. Like, what's, you know, it's just strange. Um, But I think it is meant to suggests that these are slaves in some sense they are oppressed by the dustmen um you know even more suggests that like you if you take them out that's good for them they get some rest from from their duties um it seems that these are souls who sold themselves into slavery uh after their death in some strange backwards way and i would imagine that that vaxus and the revolutionaries are trying to liberate them trying to sort of wipe the debt clean oh yeah no that makes that makes sense the the presentation of it is is just yeah so strange right that you're walking around talking to all the dead people and one of them's alive uh surprise um yeah it's really funny i mean it's just such a creative that's what kind of 
jumped out at me about it, right? It's how how much they put into this very first level, um, and well, yeah, it a lot of it is pretty well hidden. I I thought uh, it, it was not obvious to me. Uh, so, is this a location we can come back to, or are we? We're kind of out in the city now, right? It is a location we may have no choice but to come back to. Every time you die, you'll be right back on that oh. table. Um, okay. <laughs> so get comfortable navigating through there. I think in future, like after you've escaped, I, I think there's a way to sort of like fast track your way out of the mortuary so you're not, you know, climbing all the stairs and avoiding all the dustmen <laughs> all the time. <laughs> like if this was a okay. long and involved process, it's okay. There is a faster way out um for the future but yeah in in the future if we die that's logically where we're going to end up waking up and, and starting from scratch um so maybe maybe some scave scumming going forward uh if that is unnerving but yes for our next trip for our next week's discussion i suggest we just wander around the city for a little while um there is a lot to see in the hive um, and a lot of people to talk to, and a lot of weird sort of trouble and interactions to get into. So, start some fights, get into trouble, have some conversations, see what you find. We'll meet back and, and talk about it next week. Thanks very much, y'all. Uh, the Hive. Alright, so we're just playing through the Hive, but not particularly concerned about achieving anything just like yep wander around yeah cool all right uh ty everyone you're welcome hey, cory what's the, what's that mean cory i don't know thank that one you. thank you ty oh that's a thank you yeah. oh man my it's okay Thanks, it's late <laughs> i would have put it together eventually yeah this is why i'm not not uh, thriving in uh, the plains at the moment. Uh, and yet you, but I did try to stream. Adept, so. I, uh, yeah, I, I posted some stuff on Reddit, got some awesome awards on there, and I streamed uh, the first, like, 20 minutes or so of my playthrough. Nice. Uh, but I was also trying to watch William, and he wanted to play outside, so. Yep. Uh, I don't know. I'll see how that turned out. I haven't even looked at it yet. Honestly, I think we did get one follower as a result. Oh, okay. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so going forward, um, let's see. Do you know Ben? Do you have a like a rough idea of how the following weeks might go? Just to give people a little more some direction. Like, yeah, a little more of, like, what's coming down the pike. Um, without without too many spoilers. And yeah. You can, I mean. I, I know, like, there's a lot to see in the Hive. And it could very well be, you know, hours before we're even out of there. Um, I know uh, we'll probably bump into a couple of recognizable characters and stuff in our in wandering around the Hive. I think there okay. are a couple of... Um, I think there are a couple of fairly logical choke points, um, like stuff that you cannot access until you do other things. Um, 
so I don't know. Like I, I know that there are the trash warrens, and that brings up this whole sort of own plot in its own right. Um, so let's. I don't. Honestly, I'm not even sure. Like I am very much reaching here. Um, it's okay. Yeah. Like let's at, at the very least plan to spend the next week in the hive. We may want to spend two weeks there just because there is so much to take in. Um, and then, you know, if, if somebody is pointing you in a direction that seems to be closing the door behind you, maybe, like, stop there, backtrack, and we'll go with that going forward. Um, but there, the, the way that the game functions is there's very much, like, a first act, second act, and third act. Um, where in the first act, we're just wandering around the hive, getting a sense of the place, doing all of our exposition, meeting characters, bumping into former party members, all sorts of things like that. Um, and then the plot will sort of take us by surprise and carry us away. And we'll still be in Sigil, but we'll be wandering around doing various things in Sigil with a sort of clear directive in mind. Um, and then things get weird. Like, then we leave Sigil and end up in some of the Outer Plains. And, Ooh. yeah, it, it gets wild. Um, but that's way down the road uh all right well yeah well i mean i don't uh that's super late on your end so anyone needs to hop off at this point or you're fine to do that ben is going to stick around and teach me some things here uh yep, we're going to do a, a how to stream and record audio and edit <laughs> stuff 101 yeah 